scripture this morning is in Ephesians chapter 5, 7 through 12. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Would you stand back up and let's continue to worship the Lord in song together.
children, you are dismissed from George Church at this time. chapter 12, we're inching our way into these introductory verses to this section of the book. I'm going to continue to do that today, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. One thing I uh, just failed to mention in prayer time, be in prayer for uh, Lynn and uh, Janet Fleshman and for Mitch and Taryn Jones, uh, newer folks to the church, have been here for some months now, but Lynn's father... Uh, back in, I think it was West Virginia, passed away this week um, from the COVID. He was in his 90s, early 90s, young, early 90s, but um, nevertheless um, had gotten very ill with the COVID. And uh, so be in prayer for Lynn and for Janet, for Mitch and for Taryn, that uh, God would be with them during these days as they uh, mourn and grieve his loss, although they are very thankful to the Lord that he knew the Lord. And so we praise the Lord with them for that. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2. There again are this pivot point in the book of Romans that we have been studying. Talking about God's salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. It is a gift to us. We are recipients of His grace and of His mercy. And all of that is in Christ. We have His righteousness imputed to us. And by those truths, we have been set free and made right with God. And then we come to this section of the book where He is pivoting, and He says, I appeal to you, therefore, because of everything that I've said, everything that I've taught you about the mercies of God, and on that foundation I appeal to you, that you present your bodies 
a living sacrifice. We talked about that last week. What a sacrifice is. And he gives us some descriptions of it here. It is to be holy. It is acceptable to God in Christ. And it is our spiritual worship. And then he makes this statement. Do not be conformed to this world. There are two verbs that we will see in this verse. One is a negative, one is a positive. They're commands. They are imperatives in the original language. God's not giving us an option. He's not saying some Christians who really excel do this and everybody else will you just do whatever you want. He's saying to us as recipients of the grace of God stop being conformed to the world and be transformed. How are we to be transformed? This is the one that he gives us more information on. He says we are to be transformed by the renewal of our mind. Not by just doing new things. Not by just starting to go to church. Have your inner life transformed by the renewal of the mind. So that, notice this, you can discern what is the will of God. And that will, the will of God, three characteristics. Here again, three characteristics of what God's will is. You want to know God's will for your life? Three characteristics of God's will. It is what? It is good. God will not ever ask you or desire you to do something that is wrong. That is evil. His will is morally good. It is acceptable. It is pleasing. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you what? The desires of your heart. You find that when your heart is in tune with your maker, what he desires is what is pleasing. It's what you desire. It's not like God is asking you to do something that you hate. No, because your mind is renewed in his word and in his will. What he desires becomes our highest pleasure. Then he says, it is perfect. Today I want to focus on the verbs. Specifically, the first one. Do not be conformed to the world. What does this mean? This is a hard one for us. It's easy for us to get this wrong. It's easy for us sometimes to put all the emphasis on the wrong things. And to think that we, of all people, are not worldly when at the core of who we are, 
we may be very worldly. For first and foremost, worldliness is an issue of the heart. Are you a conformer or a transformer? Think about that. What does it mean to be conformed? really means to be pressed into the mold, and we'll go deeper in that a little bit later. But we all understand what that is like when you're with other people and they're doing certain things, and they're kind of acting a certain way, and we just allow those values and those actions to just press us into that very same mold, and we just conform. Many times, as a believer, you're thrust into a situation and you're very uncomfortable. But we've learned to conform. Or you're a transformer. Think of the difference between a thermometer and a thermostat. A thermometer merely reads the temperature in the room. It just tells you what is. It conforms to what is. A thermostat, on the other hand, sets the temperature in the room. As Christians, we should desire, by the grace of God, to not just be thermometers. That just reflect what the world is and what its values are and what is going on. Rather, as Christians, we should be transformers in such a way that we look like, we act like a thermostat. And when we come into the room, the temperature of the room changes. That should be our goal. So what is worldliness? What does it mean to be conformed to the world? As we begin to jump into it today, let's just look to the Lord in a word of prayer and ask his blessing on what we study. Father, we come before you today. As your children, we truly desire to be renewed in our mind. Lord, this world that we live in is just the, it's, it's kind of like the goldfish in, in, the, in the water. It's just the air we breathe. We, we're a product of our times in so many ways, and sometimes we don't even realize, Lord, how the values of the world in which we live drip down into our soul. So, Lord, my prayer for us today as your people would simply be that your Holy Spirit would have free reign in our hearts to identify in each of us values and beliefs that don't come from you, but they come from the world. And we ask that your spirit would mold us and change us. I thank you that he does so, so patiently. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is the world? You know, if I ask you, what, what is the world? You know, the Greek word is the word cosmos. You've heard that before. Many times, you know, in just kind of current popular teaching, not even in the church, people will just refer to the universe 
as the cosmos, right? You've heard the word before. It's a Greek word. It is very important, as we think about this this morning, we think about the world, that we think clearly. I've tried to stress this to you at various times in my teaching, that there are various words in the New Testament that come to us out of the Greek language that have to be understood in the context. And if you get them wrong, you sometimes think about the wrong thing. It is, it is very important that we understand what he means here when he says, don't be conformed to the world. There are three uses of the word world in the New Testament. If you took out a concordance and you looked up every time that the word cosmos came up, it wouldn't always mean or refer to the very same thing. Sometimes, it'll just simply refer to the planet. Right? The planet. He's not saying here, don't be conformed to this planet that you live on. That's not what he's getting at here. But sometimes when you read the New Testament, you will come to a place where he will be talking about the planet, and it is obvious to you. Christians are to be wise stewards of the cosmos that God has given to us. We are to live here intelligently. We are to use the cosmos. We are to use the resources that God has made, but we are surely not to abuse them. It drives me nuts to see people do that. It drives me nuts to see people live like pigs. I'll get on my hobby horse. (laughs) Out on the forest where our cattle association runs, there's a set of corrals. Teenagers from this valley, because we live in Idaho, they come across the border and they think they won't get caught, so they come there to party. I hope none of you kids do that. They'll do it in the middle of the night. And somebody brought out truckloads of pallets. And they had this huge bonfire of pallets. Why couldn't they use firewood? Now, there is nails like you cannot believe. I would love to catch those kids and wring their neck and give them a magnet and say, pick up every one of those nails. Because I'm going to be driving on them for years. It's wrong to live like a pig. Right? It's wrong. But that's not what he's talking about here. Secondly, sometimes in the New Testament, this word cosmos refers to the people who inhabit the planet. John 3.16, quote it with me. For God so loved the cosmos. Is he saying there that God loves the planet? That God loves this rock? What does he love? The people. He loves the people who live on this planet. When God sent his son to this place, he did so because he loved us. So sometimes it refers to the people who inhabit the planet. And if God loves the people who inhabit the planet, what do you think God wants us to do as his children? Love the people who live on the planet. Sometimes this word is used to speak of the pride 
of the people who live on the planet. This is what he's talking about. Sinful pride. Self. A system of values and and, and beliefs that undergirds the cultures in which we live that stands in direct defiance to the authority of God and his kingdom. That is the world. And what he is telling us as Christians is, stop being pressed into the mold of those values. I think we could summarize those values that in their essence, the the values of the world all revolve around self. Selfish pride. Selfish possessions. Selfish preservation. It's all about self. The essence of what God would have us be renewed into it could be summarized in what we read in the law this morning. The essence of the kingdom, the kingdom mindset, is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's the essence. But the essence of worldliness is it's all about me, my rights. My life, my needs, my desires. And God would have us no longer be pressed into that mold. Now, as we go through these chapters, I've told you this before, and we'll do it real quick. I'm going to run you through them real quick, and I want to show you what worldliness looks like. What worldliness looks like is being governed by the values of the world. And he goes right to it in verse 3. In verse 3 he says what? For by the grace that God has given to me, I say to everyone among you, stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. See? What does worldliness look like? What are we to stop being conformed to? Thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. What is the renewed mind? The mind of Christ. He goes into that and all through this chapter when he talks about how the mind of Christ is to put others before self and to serve, to not seek vengeance for oneself. Notice what he says at the end of the chapter. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourself. Is that the way the world operates? No way. What does the world do? Get back at you. It is. It's vindictive. You remember, I remember when you were a kid in a car? All us boys, and we'd sit in the car sometimes, you get bored going anywhere. You know, we'd get bored driving to church, let alone going on a four-hour road trip, sitting in the old station wagon. You're sitting next to your brother, and he's driving you nuts, and so all of a sudden you just hit him on the arm, right? What does he do? Come back and put his arm around you. I love you, brother Tim. No, he just hits you a little bit harder. Right? Well, he, oh, man, that hurt. I'm going to get him a little bit harder. And then what's he? A little bit harder back. Before long, you got bruises on your, oh, and then dad is wrapping you on the head. Knock it off, boys. You're driving me nuts. Kind of the hit last thing. We've all done it. 
hit last is worldliness. The Christian learns to say, enough. I'm done with it. We don't need the Hatfields and the McCoys. It gets into chapter 14 and 15. He says that those who are in Christ ought not to please themselves. The essence of worldliness is to please self. And that's where we're going to go. So what, he's going to, what we're going to see is over the next part of this study, he is going to expound for us what worldliness looks like versus the renewed mind. The renewed mind is all about love, charity, gentleness, grace, mercy, reaching out to those in need. The worldly mind is all about getting everything out of life from me. It's about self. That's the core of worldliness. There's some supporting scriptures I want to point you to real quickly. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 says this. Be very careful. Be very careful so no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elemental forces of this world, and not based on Christ. In other words, he's saying that there are human traditions and deceits and philosophies that serve as the foundational forces upon which this world operates. And he says, be careful that you are not taken captive by them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the scripture says, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to the ones who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world That's Satan. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. But you can see here that there is a God of this world who stands behind everything, who is pulling the strings like a puppet, and it is Satan. In Ephesians... Chapter 2, verse 2, he talks about how we are dead in trespasses and sins. And then he says, and we are walking according to the course of this world. Think of of a river. It flows in a course, doesn't it? And the banks dictate where the water flows. And he's saying that there is like banks to the world. And we the people... Just flow within those banks following the course of the world. In John chapter 13, if you really want to understand what Jesus taught about the world, read these chapters. In John chapter 13 and going through verse chapter 17, Jesus is in the upper room and he is teaching his disciples for the last time before his death. In that series of teaching, 41 times he says something about the world. In the rest of Scripture, there is nothing like it. 
for the sheer volume of information that Jesus tells us about the world. In that chapter, in one of those chapters, Jesus says this, you, my children, are in the what? World. But you are not what? Of the world. Now, let's think about that statement for a minute. He, Jesus said to us as Christians, you are in the world and you are not of the world. You know why we don't understand that a lot of times? Because we don't even think about what he's saying. You are in the what? The planet. You're in the cosmos. You're on this planet with these people. You are here. But you are not of it. You are not of the system of values that governs it. You are of your father. And Jesus says in these chapters, the father gave you to me out of the world. And you are now mine. So we are not in the world, or we are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. You know what happens most times as Christians? We totally reverse it. We don't live in the world. How many people that inhabit this planet do you have deep relationships with who are outside of Christ? It should be many. And what we do many times as Christians is we isolate ourselves into our own conclaves of safety away from the world. But in those isolated places, we are thoroughly of the world. So we sit in our room away from the world, and all we do is surf the internet on our phone, and we completely imbibe the philosophy of the world that surrounds us. So what we do is we separate ourselves from those who are outside of Christ, and we saturate ourselves with a philosophy that is antithetical to Christ in our isolation. And it is completely opposite of what Christ has told us to do and to be. We are to be governed, our lives are to be governed by radically different values than Madison Avenue. In John 15, in this upper room discourse, Jesus says this, if the world hates you, now there, a lot of times there's a combination of these meanings. What hates the believer? Ultimately, it's the values that stand in rebellion against God. But those values have been embraced, as we saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, by those whose minds have been veiled and are bound by Satan. So, it is the values of the world that are believed by many of the people in the world that causes people to hate us. He says, if the world hates you, understand it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, then the world would love you. However, because you are not of the world, 
But I chose you what? Out of it. That doesn't mean he took us off the planet. Right? We're still here on the planet. I chose you out of it. It is because of that the world hates you. It is important we understand that the hatred that the world has towards us and our message is not ultimately directed at us, but it is ultimately directed at our Savior. Now, that's what the world is. I want to show you one more verse. I'm going to put it on the screen, but if you want to, turn there, because I want to take a little time with this. And I want you to go to 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It's interesting. When you, if you take a concordance and you look up the word world, you will find that John uses this word more than anybody else in the Bible. So he does it a lot in 1 John as well as in his gospel. <clears throat> in 1 John chapter 2, there are some very specific things that we learn about the Christian's relationship to the world. I want you to notice that. He says, do not love the world. It's a command. The force of it in the original language is to stop something that you currently are doing. It says, stop. Agape. It's the word. Stop loving the world. Or all the things that are in the world. And then he expounds this. If anyone is in love with the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. Notice the next word, because. That word for or because links us to what it says about the Father. The reason that the love of the Father is not in someone who loves the world is this. Because everything that is in the world is not from the Father, but is from the world. And what are the things that are in the world? He gives us three. These three things are categories that summarize the values of this world. They are this. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those are all the things that are in the world. That did not come out of the Father, but do come out of the world system and from the God of this world, who is Satan. It is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, Pride of life. So what are these three things? Lust of the flesh. Pretty easy to understand that one. Read Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, he talks about all the works of the flesh that come from the desires of the flesh that are antithetical to the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Spirit. And he gives us a long listing there of all the different desires that arise in our heart that do not come from God, but they come from Satan. The lust of the eyes. What's that? I'm going to say that the lust of the flesh is the core of the nature. 
my nature apart from God. The lust of the eyes is the gateway by which Satan and the world will appeal to that fleshly instinct. The lust of the eyes. Be careful, little eyes, what you see, right? Kids, young people, you live in a day and an age that is markedly different than an age in which any other human being has existed. I was born in a day before internet, right? Most of you young people came along when it was already here. It's hard to imagine a world without iPhones. Right? Remember those days? It's hard to imagine that now. As your parents begin to entrust to you greater responsibility because you show responsibility, right, parents? You don't just give responsibility that is not being developed and shown to be trustworthy. But as your parents begin to give you added responsibilities, there is greater danger available to you through the eye gate than any person that has ever lived on the planet. It's all over the internet. It's not just pornography. It's all the values that just bombard us. One of those values is the pride of life. It's an interesting phrase. Two Greek words in the New Testament translated pride. One speaks of the boasting of the mouth. That's this one. It's like the verbal entourage of just boasting. It is the boasting of life. Now, what's that? That's the Greek word bios. You can hear biotic, probiotic, prebiotics, antibiotics, you know, all that stuff. Bios, life. Okay? Think about what an antibiotic is, by the way. It is against what? Against life. Isn't that interesting? I won't go any deeper into that. They have their purpose. But they do kill indiscriminately in your gut. That's why you need probiotics. Right? You do understand that. When you take an antibiotic, it killed everything, not just the bad stuff. So you take something good. This. In Luke 15, the rebel son comes to his father and asks him to divide to him all of his life, all of his possessions. That's why some translations translate that, this word, possessions. It is the boasting in everything that is here. In everything about your life. James talks about this in James chapter 4. He says, go to, we we quote this a lot, go to now, you rich man. Weep and howl for the miseries that are about to come upon you. 
your garments are moth-eaten, and all your possessions are being destroyed. But right prior to that, he says this. You who say you will go into such and such a city, and you will live there for a year, and you will make a lot of money and have great gain, are foolish. For your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while, and then it vanishes away. So we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And he says of the man who says, I'm going to go and do this stuff, he says, you are boasting in your life. And he says it is foolish. The pride of possessions. The pride of life. Prestige. Power. Everything associated with this life that we boast in, that we put all of our eggs in that basket and say, this is important. And what does he say of that? Notice what he says at the end of this. The world is passing away. And all of its lusts. But whoever does the will of God, he is the one who abides forever. So what does it mean to be conformed to the world? Let's just close with this. What does it mean to be conformed to the world? To be pressed into its mold. To be pressed into the mold of the world is to allow the values of this world, the lusts that govern it, to govern your life. Let me tell you something. The world is unappeasable. It is completely unappeasable. I read a great article on this subject by a guy named Greg Morse. And he took to a passage that I wouldn't have expected him to go, but it was a great passage where he was talking about this. And let me just read you a little excerpt of what he says. When Jesus analyzed the times, he did not flatter his generation. We can paraphrase him as saying this. Your generation is like a group of spoiled kids expecting the other kids and their God to do as they command. Jesus' actual words were these. To what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't mourn. That generation played happy music and sad music, and they expected the Messiah and John the Baptist to respond the way they wanted. If the children played the flute, then John must tighten his belt and dance. If they played a sad song, then the, sad, the Son of God must mourn. They expected compliance to their tune. The world wants to call the tune. The world wants to call the shots. And then Jesus depicts the people of his day as kids who changed the rules and moved the goalposts. So when John did not come eating and drinking, they say he had the demon. When Jesus comes eating and drinking, they say he is a glutton and a drunkard. It is unappeasable. But what does the world want from you? I'll tell you what the world wants from you. It wants your allegiance. That's what it wants. 
That's what Satan wants. That's what this is all about. And that is why he says, stop being conformed to it. So how do we stop being conformed to it? I'll tell you. We go into that next week by being transformed. And the way we are transformed is by having our mind changed. And as our mind is changed, we then become a thermostat instead of a thermometer. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that you have given to us in Christ. Pray that you would help us as your people as we live in this world. That we would stop being conformed to it. We would stop being pressed into its mold. But Father, rather we would allow you to govern and to rule us in such a way that you can be glorified through us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together?
bring glory to yourself through the way that we act, the way that we think, the way that, that we handle our life, Lord, that it would be a reflection of you. Lord, the, the greatest evidence of who you are in this world is seen through us. And so, Lord, we pray that we be faithful in serving you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.